on the Lean Out podcast. We've been doing a deep dive into the rise of independent journalism and looking at some of the big stories that independent journalists broke this past year. Well, my guest on today's program saw several of her own pieces draw international attention in 2022, including her reporting on the trucker convoy crisis in Ottawa, and, as we'll discuss today, her reporting around Canada's controversial Medical Assistance in Dying program, also known as MAID. Rupa Subramanya is a staff writer at the Free Press and a columnist, the National Post. Rupa Subramanya is my guest today on Lean Out. Rupa, welcome back to Lean Out. Thanks, Tara. Thank you for having me here once again. It's great to be on your show once again. Wonderful to have you back on, and congratulations on the new staff writer role at Barry Weiss's media platform, The Free Press. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's uh, really exciting, and I'm uh, really looking forward to working on some interesting stuff over the course of the next few months. Mm. I want to talk today, I mean, this is a huge moment in the rise of independent journalism, and I do want to talk about that trend today. But first, I actually want to reach back to a big story that you published in October on Canada's assisted suicide program. This topic has recently received more coverage in the mainstream press internationally, including in the New York Times. And the federal government has just announced that it is seeking to delay the expansion of its made law to include uh, mental illness. How did this story first come on your radar? Actually, there was this Associated Press story from August, and it was a pretty, you know, depressing read about medical assistance and dying in Canada. And it was a very comprehensive read, actually. I, I urge everybody to read that. And when I read it, I was like, you know, well, it's interesting, but one of the issues that I had with the story was that it relied on a lot of examples. Many of the examples, many of the stories from this in the story were from several years ago mm-hmm. um, and kind of just had been recycled. And they were, you know, they were speaking to the the families of people who had applied for MAID and ended up dying as a result. Uh, it got approved and then died eventually. So we felt, my editor and I felt that we should uh, make this a little more current and, and actually speak to people who have applied for MAID uh, and not just the family members. Uh, it is important to speak to the family members, but the family members generally tend to have a very, di- they have a very different perspective, right? They typically don't want their loved ones to go through this process. Uh, they want them to be around as long as possible. And so that kind of complicates things, you know, in in terms of really trying to understand why people are applying for medical assistance and dying. And so one of the things that we wanted to focus on was, you know, actually speak to people who had applied for medical assistance and dying and and, then just get a, you know, range of different stories, given the expansion of MAID in Canada for uh, different things. You have track one MAID where death had to be reasonably foreseeable. And now you have track two MAID where death is not reasonably foreseeable, doesn't have to be. And uh, and so it's just gotten really um, 
open and progressively it's gotten what i'm trying to say is that it's just gotten more you know easy to access you know you can access it for all kinds of different things anyway so um so we wanted to bring these stories up to date we wanted to speak to people who had actually applied for medical assistance in dying and people who are thinking of applying for medical assistance in dying when it got expanded to mental illness as a sole underlying condition now i should note that yesterday I saw a news story that um, that the government is going to put a hold on made for mental illness. It was supposed to kick in uh, March of 2023, but now it's been postponed. They're still reviewing all of the stuff, and they they're not going to go ahead with it in March of 2023, which is which is interesting. I think there's been a lot of public pressure. There's been a lot of attention to uh, medical assistance in dying in Canada, uh, international attention, especially um, given just how just how some of these stories are just shocking. The lead story in my story was pretty shocking, uh, where you had this. 23-year-old young man who had uh, who has type 1 diabetes and he's uh, suffered vision loss in one eye and will gradually lose vision in his other eye and so he was very frustrated with the situation in life and he applied for MAID in uh, April or May of this year and got approved by about August and he was scheduled to die in September and it was quite, you know, just an extraordinary story. And I came to know know of it because his mother took to change.org and social media and said, you know, I've discovered that my son has been approved for MAID for the following reasons. I need to stop this procedure. So, you know, I I, I need your help in bringing attention to this. And the, and the doctor and the people involved eventually, I think, felt just that they couldn't go ahead with it because of all this attention that they were getting. And, uh, and so they withdrew from the case. And uh, and so therefore, this Keanu's uh, life uh, was essentially had essentially been saved. So he's, he's still alive today? Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. His mother had 10 days to prevent him from dying. I mean, everything was scheduled, like the appointment with the physician who was going to administer the, the lethal combination of drugs that would uh, make his heart stop, and then he would die. The mother had 10 days to put an end to stop this. Now, this is where, you know, what, when I mentioned earlier about family members coming at it from a very different perspective than uh, than the person actually applying for MAID. So the mother, she's a mother. She wanted to uh, wanted her son to be around, and uh, and she loves her son, and she would do anything for her son. But um, and then the son, you know, was very angry with his mother for interfering in his life. He's an adult, and he said, "I'm an adult. I'm uh, I make uh, decisions for myself. This is this is not my mother's concern. She should never have done this." And he was very angry and upset with her. You know, when I when I last spoke to him, he was he was looking at legal options. He was trying to pursue legal options and you know trying to figure out how he could hold his mother to account for uh, for preventing uh, what was you know uh, preventing something that he had decided to go ahead with mm-hmm. um, as an adult. But the interesting thing here also is that I, I spoke to him a few days after he was scheduled to die. And it was Thanksgiving, and he was spending Thanksgiving with his grandparents just outside of Toronto. And he uh, was picking vegetables from his grandmother's garden, and uh, he was grateful to be alive. Mm-hmm. He was. It was. It was very moving. It was touching. Uh, and this is an extraordinary uh, person. You know, he's smart. He's funny. He's good looking. He is. Uh, 
you know, he's very intelligent and, and, you know, he's, he's aware of what's happening uh, uh, with him and the world outside and extremely uh, self-aware and, but just didn't want to live as a blind person with type one diabetes. He just uh, didn't want to live that way for the rest of his life. And it's extraordinary that someone like that got approved for a maid. And that's what I'm saying that track two made, you know, under track two made, death doesn't have to be reasonably foreseeable. Mm. And the story, I mean, the story that you published was chilling. And yeah. the statistics that you've included in the story are also quite chilling. So in our country, 2021, roughly 10,000 people died through the MAID program. That constitutes 3% of overall deaths. So right. this is a major story in our country. What was the reaction to your reporting from the Canadian media? Um, well, um I, I didn't really see much of a reaction from the Canadian media. The Canadian media typically does not react to a lot of what I what I um, what I report on. You know, so I, I I think one of the reasons for that is that the Canadian media has also covered medical assistance and dying quite extensively, even before I I wrote this. You know, you'd see stories about uh, people who had applied for MAID, and 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 I think there was one this past spring of a woman who couldn't get housing because she suffered from some kind of a disability where some kind of a skin condition. I think I, you know, I'm bangling this up, but, you know, she, she couldn't get housing that would help her with her condition and she applied for MAID. So, you know, the, the Canadian media has been exposing these stories for sure. And so perhaps that's one reason why they didn't really react to this at all. But I do think that my story of about Keanu and the 24-year-old that I just told you about. I think that was pretty chilling, uh, in my opinion. I had never, I've not, not seen anything quite like that, where you have a family member fighting to save her son's life. You have this doctor who's incredibly frivolous and about the whole thing, very, very flippant. Like it's like you know, hey, yeah, uh, we'll get your tooth extracted by Christmas time because. You know, it's just become like any other procedure. And, and several people have pointed out it's actually easier to get a proof or made than it is to get than it is to get um, uh, treatment for a condition uh, in our healthcare system, which is on the verge of collapsing. Mm. It's it's quite a time right now. And I do want to switch gears now to talking a little bit about some of the bigger trends in the media right now that we are observing. And one of those trends is just how uh, the mainstream media reacts when stories come out which do not fit the kind of major narratives of our time. So one of the things we've been talking about on the podcast series on independent journalism is there's a few strategies. I mean, one of them is this policing of narrative on Twitter. You know, if a journalist steps out of line, you will see these pylons and it's sort of a a way of manufacturing consent in the digital age. But another strategy is just to ignore the story entirely. We are seeing that play out somewhat right now with Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss's reporting on the Twitter files. What have your thoughts been on the rollout of that story and the reaction to it? Uh, yeah, it's been quite extraordinary uh, the way Matt Taibbi has been, um, you know, this attempt to discredit him, you know, that he's... Uh, a right-wing journalist. Basically, anything that you disagree with is right-wing or Russian disinformation. 
uh, and so on and so forth. No one's actually engaging with what he's saying. No one's actually engaging with what is being reported on. There's a knee-jerk reaction, unfortunately, from the journalistic community, where their first reaction is to smear the person as, as a way to try to discredit them, as opposed to actually engaging with the argument, engaging with the with the story that is being reported on. Uh, it, it is very dispiriting. I've been at the receiving end of that myself on more than one occasion. Um, I remember that, um, you know, my life really just changed. Uh, my professional life really changed during the uh, truckers protests. When I started tweeting about it, you know, people who were journalists and the general liberal ecosystem was was quite, you know, they're, they're very pleasant towards me. They were very, you know, they didn't see me as problematic, but then the protests really changed that. My views on that, you know, didn't, didn't sit well with them. And I was essentially ostracized all of my invites to the CBC and CTV and these other news outlets just just uh, dried uh, dried up. I mean, uh, I don't get those invites anymore, which is a shame because you know I think I think I do have a different perspective, you know, and I see things differently, and uh, and it just doesn't bode well for for journalism if you're only speaking to people that you who agree with you, and it's most unfortunate. But yes, I've seen a similar reaction. So for Bar- uh, the reactions to Barry, oh, you know, you're married to someone who's rich, who come from money. I mean, what on earth does it have to do with anything that's been revealed? I mean, what's been revealed is actually quite extraordinary um, in the sense that, yes, of course, you know, we knew that Twitter was doing all of this stuff. I myself have been shadow banned. I was first suspended from Twitter back in 2014 when I was based in India. And so I, I know this firsthand, you know, what it feels like to uh, be uh, canceled because the establishment doesn't agree with what you're saying, what you stand for. And, uh, and and so, you know, I've always suspected that this this Twitter was doing this kind of thing. And uh, but now we have confirmation of it. We have proof. We have evidence. We have we know the main actors behind it. We know who made these decisions. Uh, so to say that, you know, the story has no legs, it's a nothing burger. I mean, um, there's nothing to it is is rather disingenuous because this is literally, uh, you know, the world's most powerful, one of the world's most powerful organizations, censored people and possibly having interfered in the U.S. elections, which is, these are pretty big things. And it should be on the front page of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Globe and Mail, but uh, they've just largely ignored it. I kind of, I expected it. A lot of us who've seen this, you know, movie before, we, 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 we've come to expect this kind of response from the mainstream media, from the legacy media establishment, from legacy media journalists. But uh, it still, it still comes as a shock to you when this is happening. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and again, I mean, what's extraordinary is they're actually defending, I mean, journalists were, were supposed to, take what politicians and what powerful people said with a pinch of salt. But, you know, now you have these people just just defending them. They've basically become, you know, a cabal that defends the indefensible. You know, they they, they defend, you know, for partisan reasons, which is really uh, shocking. But, yeah, I'm no longer shocked, but yet sometimes I am shocked when it happens. So. Mm. 
I want to touch, uh, we discussed this on your podcast, a recent panel on journalism hosted by Carleton Journalism School about um, online hate. And so the framing of this panel was the battlefield is everywhere. And journalism leaders argued during this panel that social media abuse is the same thing as being out in the field in a conflict zone. Now, I know you've experienced your fair share of you know nastiness on Twitter. What are your thoughts on this phenomenon of online hate? And what are your thoughts on that panel? Look, credible threats of violence, death threats, that sort of thing, if they're credible, they should be reported to the police. This has always been my position. I used to receive a lot of online hate when I was based in India. Uh, I mean, that is a different level altogether. What you see here is kind of tame compared to the kind of stuff that I've been at the receiving end of in India. But having said that, I mean, no, it's not uh, something that I, you know, I, I don't think anyone should have to go through that, obviously. Credible threats of violence should be reported to the police. We have, in a, in a law-governed society, we have the mechanism to deal with this kind of thing. But having said that, what is online hate? And I'll give you an example of this. So, you know, my most recent story on PayPal, which uh, dealt with online hate to some extent because PayPal goes around suspending accounts of people who they disagree with ideologically. If you're um, questioning gender ideology, for example, uh, you get your account suspended. There are all kinds of different examples of where, you know, users, when they go up against PayPal's ideology, they find their account suspended. And one of the things that Dan Schulman, the CEO of PayPal, said earlier this year at a World Economic Forum meeting, at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, was that uh, he said it's very, it's actually very difficult to define hate, online hate. What is, what is that? I mean, this is the this is the CEO of the company who's essentially presiding over censoring people that they disagree with. But in, even he struggled to define what online hate is. I get that. I get insults all the time. People tell me to go back to India. People tell me that I don't deserve to be in Canada because I question Canadian policy. They say that if you, if you don't like it here, why don't you just go back? And, you know, I that's that's hurtful for sure. I don't, I don't like that. But uh, my philosophy is that, you know, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, you know, essentially. I don't have to be on Twitter. You know, I don't have to be on Twitter. I I really don't. I mean, I'm I'm really there just to sort of, you know, just to see what's going on. And I really don't have to post anything. I don't have to do anything there. But if I'm there, I should expect you can't go go around moral policing people. I mean, if I get online hate, uh, I I ignore it. I ignore it. Uh, you have to have a thick skin and you just uh, move on. But credible threats of violence, death threats and so on and so forth have to be reported to the police. And and then and then it becomes a law and order issue. I mean, it becomes it becomes a police matter. But other than that, what does one do about it? I mean, the idea that social media companies, uh, we, we fall into the same trap as PayPal, right? They go around suspending people's accounts because they don't they don't agree with them. I mean, anything could be construed as hate, hateful online, right? If I if I uh, question immigration policy, for example, that could be seen as hate, hateful. In fact, people have said that to me as much. Uh, my coverage of the freedom protests was seen as hateful towards the residents of Ottawa, and so it's it's very worrying when we when when we use this kind of language, you know, as as a way to moral police people. I I don't believe in it. Look, if you want to insult me on Twitter, go ahead. I don't I don't care. 
you know, I, I don't know you, you don't know me, you're just a rambling idiot, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention to that. And it doesn't affect me. And I can just block you, I have, I can mute you, I can block you, I can report you to Twitter. There are all kinds of things that I can do. But to make, see, the larger point here is that journalists have become the story now, right? Mm. Uh, and that's the that's hugely problematic. This isn't the first panel on online hate. You know, there's been there's been like so many such panels over the course of the last few years. And why, you know, what is it with, and it's a special, it's a certain type of journalist that, that is obsessed with this topic. And, and the title of this panel was uh, where the battlefield is everywhere. I mean, I've actually met and interacted with journalists who have been on the battlefield reporting from the battlefield, like people that I know who reported from Afghanistan, from Iraq, they're not sitting around quibbling about online hate. Do you, you know, can you even imagine the amount of hate these people get for for doing what they do? I mean, it's not just you know what they see on the battlefield, but but also online for their stories. I, I just, it's you know, it's navel gazing at best. I think you know, and it's it's really quite uh, embarrassing. I, I, I you got to have a thick skin. I mean, you're not you're not here to be like journalists are not supposed to be liked. Mm. It's not a popularity contest, unfortunately. No, no, it is not. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing is that uh, journalism is a fundamentally adversarial role. I mean, it's it's an adversarial role. And with that, I mean, of course, as you say, the the credible threats of violence are something separate. But the onslaught of sort of nastiness on Twitter is a separate issue. Um, I want to just to close, just touch for a moment on trust in media. So we know that trust in media in Canada is at its lowest point in seven years. What do you think the mainstream media would need to do to regain some of the public's trust? Well, yeah, that's a big one. Um, I mean, go back to the basics, figure out, you know, where where did the mainstream media lose the plot? I think money is a big factor here, obviously, uh, the corporatization of uh, media. I think that's certainly one factor I would identify. But but even that, why is that affecting your ability to report fairly and objectively on something? Why is that affecting you know, your ability to bring in all perspectives into a story? Um, and that's a big question for me. How do they how do they restore credibility and trust? I, I say go back to the basics, start, you know, there, there's got to be some introspection, Tara, and that's not going to happen if you're obsessed with things like online hate. You know, that going back to that Carleton University panel, uh, listening to the journalists, all of the online hate comes from one side, and that's from the conservative side. That's, you You ask someone like me who identifies as a small C conservative, I can tell you a lot of the hate that comes my way comes from the liberal side of the spectrum. Like I'm not, I'm not going to take a position here and say all of the hate comes from one side. I think all sides engage in uh, hateful conduct on social media, and uh, and that needs to be called out, or dealt with in a way that does not infringe on upon people's right to express themselves. I happen to be a free speech absolutist, so perhaps more than. I'm a you know more than a hardcore free speech absolutist. For me, all even hate speech to a large extent, I think, is free speech. And I've been at the receiving end of a lot of hate speech. And you know, I could have I could have you know dealt with it and you know and pursued it legally, but I chose not to. 
um, especially in India, where it, it's a criminal offense. Uh, defamation is a criminal offense. And so I could have actually taken people to court and uh, and gone through that process. But I didn't want to go, you know, I didn't want to do that because, you know, it's it's not a civil case in India. And I just let all of this go. I just, I, I just let it go. And I'm glad at that time I felt, you know, well, is, is this the right decision? But I, you know, look back on that time and I think I, I was absolutely the right decision. I'm not going to, uh, you know, I, I think we need to, we need to deal with these things in a manner that does not prevent people from expressing themselves. And for me, freedom of speech is fundamental, fundamental right. And so I, I, we got distracted here, but what, you know, because I went back to the Carlton panel on online hate, but back to the uh, media credibility issue, I really think introspection is key here in trying to figure out what went wrong, but I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing any of that. They're obsessed with all kinds of things. They're obsessed with finger pointing and that two finger pointing to one side when, you know, it's, it's a, it's a system wide problem in my opinion. Mm. And speaking of systems, I mean, just lastly, you are now part of the free press. This media platform is one of a number of new independent journalism institutions being founded mainly in the United States. How optimistic are you about the impact of this wave of new independent media outlets? Um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm quite hopeful. And I'm obviously, I'm very excited about working for the free press. I do think that you know, I think it was uh, the monk debates, uh, the recent monk debates. I think it was Douglas Murray who made this point that, yes, you need the mainstream media. You need those legacy media establishments, but you also need the independent media. It's not like one or the other. It's not an either or thing. You need all of these people doing their thing. And I think the independent media obviously is a response to the fact that the mainstream media has not done its job. You know, there is clearly they're tapping into a market that is not being served. And that's great. I, I really think it's great. I think competition is wonderful. And I think the more of this that you see, I mean, what you're doing, what I'm doing, what, you know, a lot of these other independent journalists are doing, uh, I think it's the future. I think it it is. Um, look at what's happening with the Washington Post right now. You know, I was struck by the fact that they're uh, laying off people at a time when the free press is taking off. The free press is hiring people. And that's quite quite extraordinary. Um, you know, the contrast is pretty extraordinary. And so that's telling me something. Um, or even True North, for example, you know, that I'm uh, proud to be associated with um, where I do a podcast. Same thing. You know, they're just growing, whereas legacy media here in Canada is only is, is hanging on by a thread. I mean, they're they're only surviving because of all of these handouts they get from the government. Uh, you know, if not for that, where would they be? And whereas independent media you know, it's actually going back to the basics. You don't want to get money from the government. It's hugely problematic. Even even, even if you say that, oh, you know, it has nothing to do with our editorial position. We're fiercely independent. We just get the money from the government. I'm not buying it. You know, I think there's going to be pressure at some point. I think it's it, it happens even, it certainly happens in in places where the press is not as free, but it it also happens in places where, like in Canada, where ostensibly we have a free press, but I'm, there are pressures for sure. Well, that is a good place to leave it for today. Rupa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure to speak with you. 
My pleasure, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, and hopefully I made some sense. I'm still going on like maybe eight hours of sleep over the last couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> so good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 